0: You're listening to another episode of Rally DNA.
1: very much for joining us, everyone. Uh, this week, we have none other than Ryan Champion uh, as our special guest for the Rally DNA podcast. Thanks very much for joining us, Ryan. That's nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. So, uh, going back to the beginning, uh, am I right in saying that you're... It sounded like you didn't really have much of a chance in terms of being petrol-obsessed from a young age. Am I right in saying that you're, both your mum and your dad were... Were rally drivers and and co-drivers
2: yeah very much so i mean i was uh yeah dragged i don't know if i had to be dragged along to rallies in fairness i mean i think um i think it was pretty much in the blood from an early age but uh i remember the first vague memory i have honestly um is as a five-year-old my family were talbot dealers like literally like the garage was 20 meters away from here and uh and Talbot actually serviced in the workshop that year. And of course it was the year that the Toyvenon won the RAC, 1980 in, in, in the, in the Lotus Sunbeam. And, uh, and I was five, so it doesn't take a lot of working out how old I am now, but, um, and, and I just, I, funnily enough, I remember because they were around for a while, you know, they were around setting up and I remember Avenger Estates, they had some Avenger Estates that they were using for service. And I think some of them might have even been Lotus Engine, but dad subsequently told me, but so I, I vaguely remember the Talbot team being, been here that year um and then um yeah that did a little bit in the 70s but i was quite young at the time so i really grew up he he stopped competing and and he he'd and got my mum into car driving for him at that point and when he stopped competing himself mum carried on car driving so i grew up around mum going rallying it was just normal to get dragged off to um south wales again um to uh to do a national a national championship rally or whatever it was and uh obviously living in north yorkshire and uh, it can take quite a while to get to south wales now as i go to walters arena quite regularly but it seems to take an awful long time then in the back of whatever car it was at the time but uh yeah my weekends were were, were usually spent following mum around the country and that included uh mum doing the rac she did EPR, she did um yeah belgian uh french events um and uh inherently it was something that that i always wanted to get into but that that pretty much meant that i got into co-driving first because not only was she core driving but it meant as a i guess from i don't really remember but whenever it was 12 certainly certainly by 14 because i was already doing um 12 car rallies by then i was stuck in a chase car or a service van or whatever and given a lot of maps because you used to have to use maps back then um and uh, you know, told to to get the service vehicle or the chase car or whatever it was to to wherever it was going. Um, did a few twelve car rallies, core driving, then moved on to, um, to stage rallies, core driving before I ever uh, got behind a, the wheel on a, on a stage rally.
0: As Jamie said, you probably didn't have much of a chance. But was there still a, was there a moment you could put your finger on? You said, you know, I want to actually be part of this and do this going forward because obviously you were going to have a love of the sport growing up like that, but was there a particular th- thing that you could put your finger on then that led to say, yes, this is me now. I'm doing this.
2: That's um, it. The, the one memory I have funnily enough is someone did the RAC in, I think it would be 91. I think it was 91 and it finished in Harrogate. So it was relatively local. And it was in the days where they put the winning car on stage and you are can drove the winning integrally on on stage in the exhibition hall or whatever it was and um they played the Finnish national anthem and he drives on and he hops out the car and I just like I want to do that like it, it, funny enough it wasn't even a you know a, a stage memory if you like I just remember that you know like the the whole Finnish uh celebration and him driving on stage at the prize giving I just thought how cool is that and uh but then funnily enough we were eating lunch you know so it must have whatever date finished can't remember the format, but it was something like a. I'm going to say a Thursday morning or something. A prize giving, and we were having lunch over the road afterwards. And uh, in walks you out, Kankinen. And at the time, my dad had just bought me what subsequently I learned was a McLean calendar. It was the first McLean calendar I'd ever had, and of course, there was a couple of pictures of of Kankinen in it. And uh, do you know, I was always really shy, so I, I can't actually believe I would have gone across and asked him. I don't know how it happened, but anyway. Uh, next thing, I can you design these these couple of pictures uh, for me? So that whole experience, I remember, and just thought, uh, yeah, um, it's it was it was definitely definitely in the blood by that point.
1: I can imagine uh, Yuha was uh, was a good person to, to pick as a first of WRC celebrity to speak to as well. Um, I think he was one of my first when I to have been about ten or so at a Silverstone Rally Sprint. And um, I had an old issue of uh, Rally Sport with me with, I think it was the top 10, can't have been Finnish rally drivers, but it certainly the top 10 rally drivers that they thought they at the time. And Juha signed it and then made sure to, to extend his signature all the way over Tommy and various other fellow <laughs> photos just to sort of like <laughs> which I still yeah. Have somewhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was quite a character, wasn't he? You know, let like, you just look at back, look back at the interviews and obviously there's a famous one about uh, what tyres are on you are black round Pirellis. You know, he he, yeah, he had a very dry sense of humour during his, his career. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of drivers. I, I mean, my my heroes growing up would have been more um, Tony Pond than Henry Toivonen. Toivonen from the Sunbeam days, Tony Pond, because we were Austin Rover dealers and we used to get, well, same with with Talbot, we used to get the posters and the stickers and everything else that you used to get in the day. Uh, but uh, Kankinen was definitely, you know, he was a, just such a cool character, wasn't he? And, and funnily enough, you mentioned the Silverstone Rally Sprit track. I actually went round the Silverstone Rally Sprit track with Kankinen in a, a Repsol Escort WRC. Oh, wow. And,
1: uh, That'd be 97 I, or so.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have the picture somewhere. There's a young-looking me sat alongside him. I'll um I'll dig it out and we'll we'll take a picture of it and I'll send it to you or something to share it. So a 21-year-old me, I think it was, sat alongside Cankinan, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, that was it. That was quite an experience just to to sit alongside him as well.
0: That must have been pretty special. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I've been lucky to sit with a few world champions now, but that was uh, yeah, he was definitely the first. You know, I'd never sat in with a world champion as it were so um uh when I say that I've never been in with Burnsy at that point actually no he hadn't won the world championship (laughs) at that point so so I hadn't been in with a world champion at that point but um uh yeah I mean and I always loved that and I still love that now I still love getting in a car with somebody good and just watching what they do with it because um it's never you know normally you get in a car and it's not different to what any other driver does it's just the sheer confidence that's what you see with a good driver you know just doing exactly what needs to be done at the right time and that's that's what makes the difference and any yeah, different techniques and such like and and you can just learn so much by sitting in with a good driver um i, I really enjoy that and, and find you can you can still pick up quite a lot just from from sitting in with somebody who is of, not necessarily of that level you know of, of a very good level you can you can uh, you can always pick stuff up
1: um, we touched on this already on your, your long drives to Walters or to South Wales, but I mean, I've always considered Yorkshire to be certainly for England, that the kind of one of rallying's homes. Would you, would you have said that that was a, a factor in your early career, you know being from where you're from, where you're from? Was it helpful? You know, as a home as a home county lad, for instance, there was Napal rally. Well, there we are. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so uh, yeah, but, sat next to me is the the Yorkshire Rally Mafia book that uh, that Jonathan Pullen just just wrote recently. And yeah, I grew up around that. And Dad used to supply a lot of the a lot of them tyres. You know, like um, sort of yuck Hodgson, who's who's a local rallying legend, would have been friend yuck of Dad's. Speed. And yeah, Yoke Speed and Steve Bannister was a was a, a long time customer of Dad's. And um you know the other. To the Rallying legends, locally Piggy Thompson, who of course Craig Thorley, my co-driver, co-driver for Piggy when when uh, when Craig was er- earlier on in his career, and um, yeah, so I grew up with these names, um, Andy Elliott, who had the well, still has a nightclub in York, funnily enough, and, and these were all uh, you know like heroes of mine, and then subsequently Pete Slights, who who Mum sat with, who uh, again uh, yeah, there we go, I, I haven't organised <laughs> these props, but there's metro. There yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and, and Chris Birkbeck, who mum sat with as well, who, you know, they were all local, uh, very good local drivers at the time. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely, because you had rallies. on. The, one, one thing that we struggle for with rallying is it's always tucked away, isn't it? That's the problem, and that's mm. that's why we always struggle. Certainly in, in you know, the, on the mainland, the UK anyway, they're always tucked away, and it struggles to cap- capture the imagination of the local area. But, I mean, Cropton Forest is like, Probably the crow flies like six miles that way. Um, back in the day, there was Gisborough Forest, Ingleby Forest all around here that that we used. And um, so you never had to go far to to go and see rally cars. And of course, at that time, they were probably used half a dozen times a year.
1: It's
0: a big part of it, isn't it? I mean, we've touched on this with other guests, I, I suppose, notably talking to, to Alex Giotamino you know, lately, talking about rallying in the States. The place is just so vast and trying to grow the sport in a country like that, especially with, you know, a relatively, you know, even though the championships there's many rounds, the country's so damn big. It's hard, you know, as a fan, you can't hit multiple events, you know, uh, and they're quite off the beaten track.
2: Yeah, particularly in the States, like you said, the spread so far apart. Um, but like I said, I think even in, uh, whether it's England, Scotland and Wales, we've we've struggled with that over the years. A closed road rally inherently can start from the centre of town and the stages can start pretty close by. Um, right. Whereas a forest rally, that's rarely the case, and uh, and you still have to make the effort to get into a forest because nobody lives on a forest road, uh, or very few people, and so it's always just been tucked away. To and it was very different, obviously. I mean, we all know we all we all sit there and watch uh, um, watch YouTube all the, all the videos of uh, of the whatever area you like to pick. But th- at the time, there was what probably three channels on TV when rallying was was big. And people were willing to spend, you know, a couple of hours or a few hours in the car to to go and see this this exciting sport. Whereas nowadays people just want everything instantly, don't they? And people aren't going to get in the car and drive for four or five hours just to see a car for twenty seconds if you're lucky.
1: That's a very good point about the three, four channels thing as well. And especially being that, you know, for most of this time rallying was on grandstat So, you know, quite a high profile, you know, shop window for the time and unbroken by adverts, what two hours or so of, of top quality coverage, yeah.
2: Yeah, massively so. And, uh, and again, you know, you're on about what sparked my interest. I had all those, vid- all, all those rallies on video. You know, Dad was recording them for me and I would just play them over and over and again. And again, to- particularly Teuvenen's RAC win. God, I don't know how many times I watched that. And uh, and it like Murray Walker doing the BBC coverage at the time. And then uh, uh, Dickie Davis, as it was, presented the the World of Sport coverage. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I grew up on.
0: I still get the odd shock actually watching some of those old ones, and Murray Walker comes on. I keep forgetting that he did some of those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and the rallycross as well. He did rallycross yeah, as well as as well as uh, the the circuit race and the grand prix. Yeah,
1: yeah. That that footage of uh, of Murray Walker commentating on uh, Martin Shanky getting outside the six r four and and waving his fist at I think it's Will Gollop, is is still one of Murray's finest moments out of a, a massive ah. roster.
2: And and there's a pretty good one of him uh, commentating on the Escadavid Rally Sprint. I'm going to take a stab. Somebody'll point me right, but I'm going to say 1979. Malcolm Wilson, the total escort. and he says he's uh, the young up and coming rally star. Watch this, and then he promptly roll, rolls on the next corner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Commentator's curse uh, personified. Yeah. yeah, he
2: was good at that, wasn't he, Rory Walker?
0: Yeah, he had a few of those moments. So your your first. Um, Involvement as a driver then um, you got involved in the in the Maestro on a few occasions
2: <laughs> yeah well just just two occasions but uh, yeah. it was dad so like I already mentioned we were Austin Rover dealers at the time and dad had been uh-huh. rallying an escort and uh, my grandfather decided it would be better if he uh, if he drove something that the family business actually sold and uh, so his uh, his group 4 BDA was sold <laughs> to uh, to buy a Maestro so it was a brand new brand new Maestro. I remember we picked it up during the 85 RAC because mum was away doing the rally and I'd been allowed to go at the start of the rally on the Sunday. And then dad and I picked this brand new Maestro up on the, I don't know, what if it was, uh, let's say the Tuesday or Wednesday night from the main dealer in Scarborough. And then uh, it went down to Silverstone to be, to be prepared. And, and dad did, dad did like, I don't know, four years in the Maestro Challenge. And albeit the car wasn't, wasn't the most exciting, the championship was pretty good. You know, you, people forget that we just mentioned Malcolm Wilson, Tony Pond, David Llewellyn, even the likes of Damon Hill, Gary Brabham, they all drove the Celebrity Car because it was an Austin Rover Supported Championship. And uh, they did races, they did rallies, they did hill climbs, sprints, and it was quite a, a social championship. Um, but that had finished by the time, so I, um, yeah, passed my my driving test in 92 and um, and the Maestro sat there. So it had already been sat there probably for I don't know, I guess a couple of years not doing anything. And uh, so I, I did my first couple of rallies in it, um, then used it as a recce car once I started on the Peugeot Challenge. Um, I put it off in Belgium, recceing in 1994, and it sat untouched, I would say, for a long time anyway, till about four years ago when we res- resurrected it out of a corner. And it's uh, it, it's now in, uh, in pretty good shape again now. It's one of the... Uh, one one of the rare maestros in quite good condition. It's eighteen thousand miles from new, always Huge raced, classic. always raced or rallied, uh, one owner, patchy service history.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and from there, you were presumably one of the one of the earliest uh, in the the Peugeot Challenge. Uh, would it be ninety three, the first year with the two hundred
2: five. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, it had been going a few years. I think. Um, because the... it was 309s right, earlier, Yeah, well a 309, they did the Young Lions, which was mm. I can't remember if it was 87 or 88, which Colin McRae was one of them. Yeah. And they ran them in the national championship as a precursor to the first year of the of the challenge, which I think was 89 from, from memory, but I, I could be wrong. Um, and and it was two or fives and three oh nines. Um so yeah, by the time I did it in '93, in it was very well established. And um I did. Did I did one rally at the end of '92. I think never did it, did a rally in Hamstley in, in the car, and then started '93, and there was like sixty odd Peugeot's out on a round. Um, and I remember doing it, finishing an early rally in, I don't know, let's say thirty seventh Peugeot or something, and been fairly mortified going, how 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 do you do that? Um, and then we got we sort of got into the. Uh, I don't know, top 20 probably. And then and then you needed the skip brown engine at the time, it turns out. And once we got the skip brown engine, then suddenly the top tens came and uh finished my first year with uh, with a win in Belgium on the tour of Flanders. Um, and that was uh yeah, quite a highlight at the time. It was only my second ever tarmac rally, never done a personal rally. Um, but in those days you could um, you know, you did practice really. You hear a lot of talk of it in the old world championship days, but even then in the in the early nineties in the maestro, we um, we went over and over the stages and, and did a really good recce and uh, and come the rally. Um, you, you really knew the stages pretty well. And in some ways, it was actually an easy way to make pace notes because you got a chance to practice um, not only making pace notes, but refining your pace notes. Uh, whereas obviously now for people doing it off a two-pass recce, it's quite a difficult skill to learn, actually. Um, so where, where you add on unlimited reckeys back in the day it was certainly much easier to do um and it's funny it's, it's something I still say to, to young drivers and co-drivers yes you need to do them in two passes but if you've never done them before just go and practice on your local roads go and do eight or ten passes until you're comfortable in what that corner looks like in your head and what you call it and then when you go and do a two-pass recce it's much easier if you if you've you know if you've done more passes before that because it is it's a massive part of the sport now and uh it's I think sometimes people underestimate just how important it is.
0: And of course, it sounds like you are wrecking at quite a speed in the Maestro in Belgium as well. So,
2: I mean, speed and Maestro is comparative, <clears throat> obviously. Yes. But, um, relative, yeah, relative relative I mean, to the care. But what you used to do, and then and then I, I went from Maestro to a 309 GTI, which was a little bit quicker. But um, oh. I, but I, I guess not that much quicker, really. And uh, but yeah, the the wreckies even then. Um, were pretty free. And what you used to do was make the notes in the daytime and you were steady away in the daytime. You used to wait till it got dark. And then once it got dark, the spectators came out and they pretty much closed the junctions off. Um, I remember particularly the first time I went to Le Touquet in France and there would have been myself, Justin Dale, Jock Armstrong, Neil Simpson, uh, Guy Anderson. We were all doing the 205 Challenge together. And uh, the recce was actually good fun, honestly, because um, you did you did carry a bit of speed in it and and at that time the works cleos were were out there was Bogalski and ranyotti uh it was the first year of the the three or sixes, I seem to think and um uh we worked out if you wrecked somewhere near Ranyotti, roads were closed, there was that many ranyotti fans out, and he put a bit of a sha at every hairpin, so every junction was closed. if you could be wrecking the stage where Ranyotti was you didn't need to worry about stopping for junctions.
1: <laughs> it's the motorsport equivalent of following an ambulance closely to get yeah, to the Yeah, it, it, it
2: probably was, yeah. But but there was regular story, and, I mean, it's probably not good to talk about this now in, in today's politically correct world, but um, it was very rare that you got to the end of a recce without going off. Very rare.
1: Wow. <sighs> <Healthy> in <indeed>. days. <laughs> it was a bit, really, with hindsight, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and in 94 then you were the winner, uh, winner of the the junior championship with the proposal.
2: Yeah, so so 94 um obviously 90 93 was really a learning year 94 um I, you know then had had some experience still relatively young and um you know Justin Justino was was going very well by then uh, but it was actually Rudy Lancaster who won the championship that year and Rudy had uh, obviously still doing um historics now but rudy done british championship by then so he'd actually come back from doing brc i think in a sierra cosworth at the time to doing the peugeot challenge and uh so he was very experienced and, and went well um and yeah we had a mixed run early on not not too bad but um we won again in flanders and actually in the two cave i think if rudy if rudy finished outside the top three and we won then we'd win the championship and um it was a tarmac rally, which by then I was going pretty well on, on tarmac. Again, we did a a, a good recce. Um, I was actually feeling quite confident going into it. And um, uh, the first stage was wet. And I set the brakes up in the dry and hadn't just accounted for the fact I might have a bit too much front brakes and literally locked up at the first junction and lost four minutes in a ditch. And we fought back to second. Uh but pushing quite hard, I think, because Justin was leading the rally and we went off again and we ended up fourth. So, yeah, second in the championship that year, um, which, uh, yeah, it was a shame, but I mean, whether it would have changed anything with with hindsight, I'm not really sure. So, um, But, it, you know, just the lasting memory of those, those events is just how many cars there were out on the rallies. You know, like I said, when you had 60 cars out uh, in the championship and... You know i bang on about it regularly on anybody who listens to absolute rally they'll hear me talking about one minute championships but there was there was nowhere to hide you know like if you were if you if you were any good you shone and if you weren't you didn't it was as simple as that and there was good support from Peugeot there was a good price scheme um obviously you had to buy the parts from, from Coventry so they made good revenue out of it as well but it just it worked all around. Um, you know, there was there was supported drives at the end of it, like I said, prize money, but ultimately they made money they made money as a business as well. So uh, as well as selling more more Peugeot's out of it. Um and that those those championships are very sadly missed, particularly in UK rally.
0: Yeah, you just touched, on, I was going to raise that point: the decline of the one-make championship as a you know real tour de force in both development and strong competition. Because you said there was nowhere to hide, and those championships like right across Europe produced serious talent and serious competition, and you know, and were a good business model as well for the brands too. So the are definitely sadly missed, and and you know, I don't know if we could debate this for a long time, but it'd be nice to see an effective replacement um, for those things.
2: Yeah, it, it absolutely would. But I think, it, unfortunately, it's reflected in the the lack of interest in rallying in this country, for whatever reason. You know, the, the manufacturers aren't involved anymore. But, again, that's a reflection of where the sport is in this country because, unfortunately, BRC doesn't get much coverage anymore. Therefore, what's a the manufacturer actually going to get out of it? Um, you know, and I guess... Even if we look at, uh, at British Touring Cars, which is which gets incredible coverage, huge spectator numbers, but there's still not that much manufacturing money in there. Yes, there's official teams and official support, but most of the drivers are still having to find half a million quid to do a year's racing. Um, so, yeah, we we really struggle for for manufacturer backing in this country, but, but particularly in rallying. And, and you notice if you do go to France, you go to Belgium, um these one mate championships are still there in, in, in Spain, in Portugal. Uh, you know, you still see Peugeot championships as a GI Yaris Cup in uh, Italy and uh and, and Spain and Portugal now. And um like I said, unfortunately, it just reflects the the general lack of interest in, in rallying in this country now.
1: Did you have an appreciation of just how good the the Peugeot challenge was at the time? It was it only, totally, you know, in the passage of time that you sort of began to grasp how how well-supported, competitive and et cetera it was?
2: I think a bit of both because you knew at the time if you wanted to get noticed, then that, that was the championship to do because you don't, I mean, obviously Richard Burns had already come through it. Uh, Colin McRae in the early days with the with the Young Lions. Um, you had, you know, the Johnny Milners, the Paul Franklins, the, uh, well, Chris but all Peugeot-supported drivers. And every, of course, everybody was aspiring to, it's funny, isn't it? Aspiring to be a works rally driver. Can you imagine that now? Can, how do you aspire to be a, a works rally driver? I mean, my 205 cost six grand. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't 86,000 euros or whatever you have to give now for a, I don't know if you no, know, some a rally four car or whatever they are now, I have no idea. But, um, you know, you're talking an awful lot of money and that was that was 6,000 quid for a for 205, which, yeah, we ended up putting an engine in it. And to be honest, the Shell was tired. But, you know, it wasn't wasn't expensive. Yes, okay, I'm not saying that anybody could do it because they couldn't. But in comparison to the costs of getting involved now, it was was substantially cheaper and there was prize money. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was obvious what the Peugeot were putting money in, that Peugeot was supporting not only young drivers, but they also had a works rally programme. There was progression there. And uh, it, uh, it continued, obviously. I mean, Peugeot did it all the way through. Um, the the three or six championship didn't really get the numbers in quite the same way. But then, of course, the one or sixes, two or sixes were incredibly successful as well. Um, so, you know, they, they really did, at the time, run the best one-mate championship.
1: I think you're completely right. I mean and and, and the link to the, the 306. I mean that's that that must have been a fun car to drive. The uh, the S16. Um and was that a natural progression for you?
2: It was a natural progression because at the end of 94 um the 205 production was well produ- production I was already discontinued by then so obviously Peugeot wanted to move on from the the 205 and the 309 when they launched the three or six championship, which also became the British junior championship, which also meant stepping up to the British rally championship. Um, So again, uh, there was in 95, there was myself, Justin, Neil Worden. Um, You know, there was, there was, there was a number of good drivers in it. Um, The only issue really that year was the cars were brand new. So we had quite a few development issues, I would say even through 95 and even into 96. And it, it wasn't always the fastest car that uh, that won, just because there were such new cars in in rallying terms. So um, the two or five, by the time I got to it, was so well developed that um, you know reliability wasn't really something you ever thought about. Whereas the three or six, it, it did throw a fair few issues, and and like I say, some some came out better than others with that. But nonetheless, it was yes, it was still a uh, it was a progression. It was um almost a natural move because that that took me into the British Championship. And, and like we said, we're into starting to make pace notes on every rally, starting to make pace notes on gravel for the first time. Um and you know, and, and BRC always was a, a fantastic place to develop. I mean, it's it had some of the best rallies. I would say some of the best rallies in the world, you know, going to the Isle of Man, the Manx International at the time was just incredible Ulster rally that lasted. I can't remember how, how long it lasted at the time, but it, it just never stopped. You know, you 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 finished like late on the first evening, then it restarted at whatever four in the morning, and and you were you were out on the road again, and it was like really, it was, it was just continuous really. And um, there were and a, and of course around the rally, by then you had the Alistair McRae's, the Mark Higginses, the Gwyndaff Evans who were all doing the rally as well, and so you you sort of suddenly mix in with the people that you aspire to, to, to be like, um, and, and yeah, and that, that was suddenly very different to doing BTRDA rallies, I would say.
0: How much of a challenge did you find switching to, to making your own pace notes at that time? And was it, was it a big challenge? And did you then find, you? I presumably, th- that it was actually a much better way of doing things as well?
2: Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think I was lucky in that I'd done the, the tarmac rallies at the end of, so the the two or five championship tended to ramp up during the year to do the bigger rallies at the end of the year. And um, because I'd had the experience in France and Belgium of making my own pace notes with a, a relatively unlimited recce, mm-hmm. then um, it was easier to come to a limited recce on the, on the, on the gravel. At that time, the Talmat rallies weren't limited, The Oster, but the Ulster rally recce, you only got two days to do it and you could only physically get around everything two or three times at the most, you know, you were literally running it, it was it was a full-on recce, the Ulster Rally at the time, it just never ever stopped um, the Isle of Man was a bit easier because you could, it wasn't limited in time so you could spend a bit more time on the Isle of Man and, and, and the Manx at the time we had you know quite a good recce and a good amount of time to recce um, I re- I remember the first time I went to the Manx which was 95, by the time we arrived there was all these stories of uh, people taking number plate light bulbs out of the recce cars and covering number plates up and um, accidents on the recce, usually by uh, either French or Belgian drivers, will remain nameless. But um, rumours of paying paying locals off because they'd had a head on on a back road and, and whatever else. And uh, you know there was big money around at the time. Of course, you had you had uh, the manufacturer spending a lot of money there. And uh, towards the end of the nineties, particularly, you know, when the, when the F two the F two days came along.
0: The Manx, it really had such a heyday in the early and mid-90s as well. Yeah. It's, it, it's one you look back on now and think, you know, you can look back at obviously loads of famous events over the years, but if I had a chance to spectate or take part in a couple of those ones, it's a, yeah, still a wow moment watching a lot of the coverage of the Manx. It just looked really, really special.
2: It was, and it was, you know, it was a hard rally as well. It just, uh, it seemed to go on forever. I remember doing it, I think it was 99 and it was something like, I don't know. I want to say two hundred and fifty stage miles. Uh, well, a WRC rally never sees two hundred and fifty stage miles now. Um, and it, uh, yeah, they were tough rallies. You know, they just uh and, and but but the Manx was always just just a real challenge anyway because the nature of it so fast in places, very fast, very high speed. Of course, you have the wide open roads and the, and the, and the very narrow, bumpy, almost single track roads. Um, if it was wet, it was pretty lethal as well. Which Found out on several occasions. Um, but it's like you said, I mean, even before I went to the Isle of Man, I'd been spectating with mum and dad. I'd been and watched mum compete there. Um, I remember watching uh, at Brandywell Cottage, Tony Pond and the Rover Vitesse. Re- can still remember that clearly. Uh, it was the year that he, he drove the white Daily Mirror car before he finished it off on the RAC. Um, <laughs> but I remember being at Brandywell and he handbraked uphill. And all, all the crowd were just cheering. Um, so to go to the Isle of Man and compete on those stages uh, was quite was something quite special. Just to, just to even go and do the stages that I'd seen Blomqvist, et Blonquist, etc., etc., all competing on, on those same stages.
1: Superb stuff. Um, for the following year, uh, you had an Impreter five five five. Would that be your, would it, would it, would that have been your first experience of four-wheel drive Valley car?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, so at the end of 96, we'd had, we'd had a tough year with the, the three or six, the second year we were, we were normally going very well, either leading or, or, you know, certainly in the top three, but I had some unreliability with it and ended up, didn't, didn't finish the championship in the end, just because there was no point. We couldn't really win anything. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was really what to do for, for 97. Um, we looked at a couple of different options. I say we, cause, cause dad, you know, I couldn't have done it without dad at the time. And my grandfather even was helping as well. And um, it was by that time, F2 was kicking off and uh, we actually looked, I remember at a, an ex, uh, kind of a kind of a work spec astra I don't think it was actually an X Works car it was um a Tim Ashton built car which ironically now uh it's quite topical it was a Gazprom car so Gasprom oh, really? had a, yeah so Gazprom had a had a quite a, a strong rally team for a while and, and gas Gazprom had run these sort of work spec astras and, and I remember we looked at that um but the sheer running costs of the things even then you know was was very expensive and in comparison a, a group N car was was relatively cost effective and and actually that that Subaru we ran in 97 was a recce car and uh, we bought an ex-recce car from pro drive it was a it was Kenneth Erickson's recce car from 1996 um and literally I mean we we put a a rebuilt had the engine rebuilt put a restrictor in it and um you know that was more or less it uh we went and, and did the British championship with it so it 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 was relatively cost effective for for what you could you know what you could achieve with it. Um the the, the Achilles heel with the Subaru at the time was the gearboxes. And uh yeah. um the MSR that were running at the time for me, they became pretty adept at changing a, a gearbox and you had to carry a spare gearbox because it just wouldn't last uh a British championship rally as we found out. Um but uh but other than that you know it was a it was a, a pretty good car really um and then and then for 98 uh we sort of we ended up going the Mitsubishi route because because of the gearbox really uh there was the Evo 4 was out in 98 in fact even the Evo 5 came out in 98 but we had a chance for for quite a good Evo 3 and and that's what we ran in 98. Um and and the gearbox was strong it was just everything else that broke. So we uh, we had an engine problem in in Wales when the electrical problem on, on the Pirelli we're going all right in Scotland. Then we broke a drive shaft, had a puncture and then I binned it on the Ulster. So um, yeah, 98 didn't go particularly well. Weren't you uh,
1: top 20 on the RAC in that Evo 3 as well that year? We
2: were lying. Yeah. We were lying just, I think round about the top 20, maybe just inside the top 20 last, the last morning of the 98 RAC and it was thick fog. And I remember in the area around Walter's arena, not, the, the other side of the hill it was it was really thick fog and uh, just came into a corner and just saw a massive rock that had been pulled out like a massive rock like an embedded piece of stone almost that had just been yeah and just with the cars passing over it had come loose and I just hit it and it it ripped the corner off it and at the time that was quite um uh that was quite hard to take actually that was my first r s e or rally g b as it was at the time, whatever it was called network q rally and right. uh to to not finish and, yeah, to get a top 20 at that point, particularly after a bad year, would have been quite something. So um, that was quite tough not to not to finish that rally. Um, the same event, actually, where Carlos Sainz didn't finish either. That was the, uh, the same rally he got within, whatever it was, 200 metres of the finish line. We didn't get quite that close, but it was the last day. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's the famous helmet through the back window yep. incident, that's, isn't
2: it? Yeah, the same one. Yeah, I still remember seeing Tommy MacKinnon's uh, Evo five on on three wheels after Millbrook, because um, he, he drove it out the stage and he was trying to drive it down the road, and then the police actually stopped him. And I remember there's a, a village hall, I don't know, a couple of miles down the road from Millbrook, and I can still picture where he was where he was parked up. <laughs>
1: Do we ever ID the uh, the owner of that particular hillman imp that uh, that dumped all the oil on that corner at Millbrook or not? I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure with I'm
2: sure with, uh, with EWRC now it wouldn't be that <laughs> difficult actually to the, the, the results of the historic rally are probably there somewhere if we yeah, if we had a look.
1: He's
0: probably petitioned EWRC to remove them <laughs> yes, from yes, this from the yeah. website.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> How would you raise the, the Evo versus the the Impreza and Group N form at the time? Obviously the. Troubles of the production five speed in the Impreza are well known and still causing people trouble to this day, actually, as, as I saw at the weekend when we, we passed an Impreza with its gearbox blown up. Um, <laughs> but um, how would you rate the two cars as, as under uh, and competition?
2: Well, it was exactly that. You know, that's, that, that was exactly at the time with the five speed gearbox in the Subaru. It was just its Achilles heel and Pro Drive did a, diff- a couple of different gear kits at the time and, uh, oh, this is the new gear kit. This one's stronger and you fitted it. And it lasted about the same length of time as the other one. And, uh, David Higgins at the time was doing the British championship with the Barrett's car, which was like a, you know, it was everything pro drive could do at the time. Um, they had a, a proper new build car. I remember they were running sort of turbo fuel, which at the time to us that was like, what, like what you don't just go to the petrol station and buy petrol for it. And, um, <laughs> And it but even then they were struggling for gearboxes just the same. And uh the Mitsubishi's were definitely the stronger car. Um, maybe slightly heavier, maybe not quite as nimble, but they were a stronger car, and the engines on the on the Mitsubishi's were always very, very strong as well. Um but you know, it really depended on on which car. And then of course in uh, ninety nine, then they allowed dog boxes really because Subaru pushed for it. And um, you know, once once a Subaru got a dog box, then then it alleviated that problem um, but it really did depend on on what version of of car and who built it and the engine mapping was a big thing as well um, you know if you had somebody good doing the engine mapping it, it made a, a massive massive difference in fact funnily enough i that uh, the Subaru i ran in 1997 had a pro drive map in it um but somebody remapped it at the end of the year and said right have a go in that now and it was a different car but we, you know, unbeknown to us, it was a GEMS ECU. And actually, if you knew what you're doing, you could just, you could remap actually. it. But we thought because it was a Pro Drive map, it was the best it could be. But, you know, far from it with uh, with hindsight. And and it was similarly through the Group N days. You know, I drove various Group N cars over a period of 10 years. And even in the Evo 9 days, you'd drive two Evo 9s. And there was just no comparison between the two, just depending on who'd done the engine, how, how. Uh, close to the edge of the engine was and and what fuel it was running
1: It's fascinating the number of variables that even in modern rallying still you know crop up in on along those lines
2: yeah 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 it is um and like i said by then uh obviously turbo fuel was 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 normal really particularly at british championship level and uh again the difference between a pump fuel and a and a proper turbo Fuel, whatever it was at the time, Shell, Elf, whatever, and it, of course the car had to be mapped to that. But I remember doing a back-to-back test one day between the two, and and just not necessarily top end, but in the Group N cars, the, just the mid-range and the torque was um, the difference was 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 quite noticeable.
0: Of course, it's much healthier for for the engines as well much much less chance of detonation as well. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Much much more consistent, um, higher oxygen content, better, better burn. Uh obviously at the time it was higher oxygen content as well. So sort of one or two as opposed to um 98 or whatever you were getting at the pump at the time. So yeah, it was it was a a big advantage to be running a a proper fuel. But of course uh I don't know even then you know it was it was incredibly expensive compared to to pump fuel and and got ever more so. Um, but you know, it wasn't a new thing. I remember a friend of mine was involved with uh, Nissan with the GTIR, like back in like 1991, and, and and I remember him talking of fuel at ten pound a litre in 1990, 1991, because they were just brewing their own fuel effectively, um, and obviously all the teams were at it, and it, it just made such a big difference in in performance that um, uh, you know, there's no wonder things eventually became a little bit uh a little bit tighter regulated and control fuels and all that because you know the, the the normal additive at the time like back in the early 90s was tolly lean like whatever it is paint thinners or whatever it is i don't know what it is but I, I remember if you spilt it on the floor it would lift paint off a workshop floor within seconds it wasn't nice stuff but um it was a cheap way to make uh go faster fuel
1: it's also intrinsically associated with the uh or even an incident, isn't it? totally lean um, or at least one of the theories that I hear banded around
2: um, yeah, I mean like you say there's there's a, there's a few isn't there with, was it, oh, yeah mm-hmm. nitrous has been mentioned a few times as well, hasn't it and whatever else, but for some reason, the car exploded obviously and it 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 wasn't uh it wasn't a massive impact, was it unfortunately and um obviously quite topical at the minute um in that time of year and uh yeah. I mean that was a, a, a huge loss to the sport, and and like I said, when you see the actual size of the off, it wasn't a big accident, and uh, yeah, very sad loss for the sport. That.
1: Totally. Um the, the the having presumably what cut your teeth on turbos and all wheel drive, the move back to the Peugeot one hundred and six and natural aspiration and front wheel drive that must have been, if not a culture shock, certainly a challenge.
2: Did. The biggest difficulty with that, um, so in 99 I did some some of the BRC. Um, but by then we were sort of struggling for money and struggling for any real forward direction. So 99 was the first year of the 106 cup. Uh Mark Fisher won it. I was quite good friends with Mark. Um we met in a a bar in Letterkenny at about four in the morning on the Donegal rally. Um <laughs> And, uh, we, we sort of became friends after that. And, um, anyway, Mark had won it in 99 says, you've got to do this in 2000. So, so I went to do it. Um, but we just talked about personals. I actually struggled going back to organisers personals at the time. And when you, when you got so used to driving on your own personals and, and then by then I was against a, a new breed. So it was then Gary Jennings, Rory Galligan, a young bloke called Chris Meek, um, there was uh, you know, there was a whole host of, of quick drivers in the 106s, and um it took me a while to just get used to I would say taking risks again, because taking risks on your on your own pace notes is is certainly a lot easier than uh, taking risks on organizers' notes, plus the rallies were very short. Um and it, it did take a bit of getting used to. Um but we, we had some good runs in 2000, but again um I don't know why unreliability seems to have struck me a few times over the years and we bought a used car from 99 for 2000 and we didn't realize at that time how weak the body shells were because uh, uh, Peugeots aren't really known for their for their strength particularly a 106 I mean it, it didn't weigh anything anyway and we had dry shaft problems on a couple of occasions and it was the chassis legs were flexing and the car was only like whatever 18 months old by by this time and there was like flex in the body shell and uh yeah anyway we we ended up with it with a couple of a couple of non-finishes that we shouldn't have had um went back to uh to Flanders that year so Flanders was the last round of the championship we couldn't win the championship by then uh, I think it the second last round of the championship actually but so we we couldn't win the championship but I was adamant we were going to win Flanders and um I had uh I had Alan Harriman with me who's since become a, a good friend and uh, um, I was lucky enough to have Terry co drive on a couple of occasions, funnily enough, um, on the Manx. And um, and then Alan did Flanders with me that year in 2000 and we had a, I had a one or six rally as a road car and we'd done every stage, I would say, a dozen times and we had this rally won before we even went off the ramp except halfway through the first stage we didn't <laughs> and, uh, it just got out of phase on a on a bumper we we hit a barn backwards and this uh a 106 isn't a long car but by the time we hit the barn it was a bit shorter substantially shorter actually that sounds um, like a proper accident yeah it, it was a reasonable accident but the reason they had to stop the stage was we dug up a world war one mine as we'd gone through the field <laughs>
1: Oh, crikey. <laughs> wow, that's that's both <coughs> my interest in the war and rallying together at yeah. last.
2: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> anyway, it needed reshelling after that. 2001 went, it did go better. Um, Rory won the championship, but we had some good battles that year, like I said, between Gary, Chris, Rory and myself, a few others that were in there as well. Um, that that was a, a good year, you know, just, just everybody going like idiots. In one or six years, we did some good rallies um well we did some good rallies and then it was that was the year of foot and mouth of course so um the first round was the rally of the wirral or the rally of a thousand corns as it uh as it became known so yeah we we did a mixture of rallies that year um but but good memories of the 106s because again it was just back to close competition really and uh yeah everybody was just just on it just absolutely on it
0: Yes, again, another example, a lot to be said for a uh, you know, one make championships again, just breeding tighter and tighter battles in the same machinery is is always just as exciting to watch as, as people in different stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and you know, the 106s weren't massively powerful, but they were the gearing was pretty good in them. And you know, still we still see quite a lot of 106 cup cars out there now, two or six cup cars and uh, like you say, because they were identical, and Peugeot were pretty good at um, at monitoring the, the the championship in terms of uh, scrutineering. So the cars were were equal, and um, there was just some yeah proper battles. Because again, like we said before, if you wanted to be at the front, you had you had nowhere to hide. And and by then there was yeah, like I said, very little in the cars, and uh, um, it was uh, yeah, it was good racing really.
0: They were presumably quite production-based cars as well. There wasn't much in the way of changes made to those, was there?
2: Um, no. A little bit. I think maybe they had different cams in them, but the, the big thing was the gearbox because they had a lower final drive and a proper diff in them. So they were only geared to like a hundred miles an hour. So you, you know, they they travelled, they accelerated relatively quickly. They were very light. They stopped very well because they started four pots on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually for a a relatively standard car if you like they really did carry some some speed
0: they quite a long second gear as well if i recall correctly don't they
2: I um i don't know you think they're a couple
0: of yeah quite, quite long and second.
2: Me, but but i remember like fifth gear was <laughs> you soon run out of speed in fifth gear that was for sure um but um they were yeah they, like i said because they were so light and you had good brakes i mean and and we're on Michelin's as well, which so they were good tires. And I remember on the tarmac, they were they were quite a weapon actually on uh, on tarmac for what they were.
1: The following year, they moved to the Puma fourteen hundred. I mean, that must have felt like a big deal at the time, presumably because it was.
2: Um. Yeah. I mean, that came about really through through my my longtime friend and. And mom's longtime friend Chris Burtbeck. So Chris, by then had been running the, the, like a Ford Satellite team for quite a long time. From really from what would it be I think ninety six, maybe he was running the the RS two thousands, and uh, maybe most well known for running the Simonite sisters with the the auto windscreens car. But you know Chris had three or four of the RS two thousands at the time. I did the Jim Clark in ninety nine in in an ex Gwyneth Evans car um and and chris chris and i had always tried to do stuff together but um the one problem was paying for it and uh you know there was normally cars there but it it was the same old story of of how do you fund it and uh particularly with those f2 cars because you know i think even then an extract box for rs2000 was like twenty five thousand pounds or something in in the late 90s you know these were expensive cars at the time um and as much as I'd always wanted to try and do something with Chris, it just never really worked out. And Chris said, "Right, you might as well come and do this 1400 championship because you can win this, um, and and if you win it, there's a super 1600 car at the end of the year." Um, so uh, that's that's what I did. Um, went and did the 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 1400 Puma championship. It's it's Achilles' heel it was was the gearbox. It had a dog box in it, but. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't very strong, and uh, you, you really had to be quite careful with the gearbox, um, which, uh, yeah, I learned that one pretty pretty early on. I, th- I think I remember finishing the Rally of Wales with three out of its six gears. And, and actually, you never used sixth because it was geared to like 150 miles an hour or something. So um, sixth was, wasn't the gear you ever used. But uh, that year went pretty well, and uh, we won the championship. And I think we won... Twelve thousand quid in, spon- in um, prize money or something like that as well so uh it um yeah that year went went to plan really it was go and do it win it get the super 1600 car for the for the following year
1: i must admit i'd forgotten how much um production kit was carried over into the 1400 puma the the live back axle for one and the the standard presumably strengthened ib5 gearbox casing as well which presumably was a factor in the the aforementioned gearbox issues
2: yeah i think that you know the gears were quite small the the drive shafts came out of i think maybe a v6 monday or something like that and the hubs were i think it was v6 monday i could be wrong mm-hmm. but there was there was some drive shafts issues with them as well i mean fundamentally if it had been lower geared it would have been quite a good car as the gearing it was just just really over geared but we were limited to what we could run on the in the championship and it was on 17-inch uh, wheels on tarmac as well. It was just, uh, yeah, the gearing was very long in it, but um, it fundamentally could have been a good car. It just, it just was always a bit short of development, the 1400.
0: So the 1600 then must have be just really day and night between that car was it or or did it feel quite similar to begin with and then it quickly revealed itself to be a totally different no it was a totally
2: different car i mean obviously the the first thing was the transmission would have been sequential um uh flat shift much shorter gearing um no it was a a completely different thing to drive the the thing about the super 1600 car is you could be doing 25 miles an hour and it still feel like it was ripping your arms out um that car you always felt like you were going fast regardless of what speed you were doing um uh, the but even with the the sixteen hundred car it it really didn't have the level of development that a lot of the competition had because at the time it was this hundred thousand euro price cap um that the FIA had introduced and Boram developed the car to the hundred thousand euro price cap. Whereas if you went and bought a two or six or a a Clio or uh, whatever else it was at the time, you could buy a kit of parts for a hundred thousand euros. Um, but it's a bit like with the uh, with the R five cars now or the Rally two cars. What what you want a sump guard really? Oh, and you, what a trip meter and a you want? Oh, you actually want a footrest and and really a, you want a roof vent in it and and so on and so on. And suddenly it's like you know for one you can actually rally. It's suddenly. Uh, 30 or 40 grand dearer so the same stance uh, stands today.
1: That was uh, was that an ex francois duval car? It
2: yeah, was? It, it was. Yeah, so it was um, it was the car, and the one, yeah, car. yeah. It, it it again, that didn't all kind of pan out quite as planned because um, we won a championship, and the deal was the loan of a 1600 car for the year, um, full spares package in fact we've got a transit van full of spares from boreham car was was prepared from boreham and i think at the time the deal was something like thirty thousand pounds in in cash to run it and i remember going to chris and saying right what else do we need <laughs> and i think it was like another 60 or something even then to do british championship i think it was something like a ninety pound budget um and anyway long story short um boreham came up with a plan. Uh, to to put me with uh, with Rally Sport Ireland and it, and I ended up getting run by by Stan Harper out of out of uh out of Ireland, which, um, that was great. It all worked out in terms of funding because it meant I didn't have to find any more funding. But uh, Chris and I had sort of put the whole plan together to to do that year together, and that 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 had been the hope, but it, it didn't quite work out like that. Um, but ironically, the car was one that Chris had run, like you said for for Francois. Uh, he won the two thousand two Monte in it guy wilkes then did the 2002 brc in it then went back to Borum for a rebuild and i was given it for for the 2003 brc
0: you had a pretty strong year of results in that care as well i mean you must have been pretty happy with it overall It uh,
2: it was up and down honestly um what what um Sort of Clive, Clive, who's running it at Stans, who, who, funnily enough, I'm still in touch with now, and and Stan. And what everybody at Harpers was was really struggling was with, with was the amount of different spec of Puma parts there was by then. There was there was evolutions and evolutions and evolutions, and um, obviously the car had just been rebuilt from Borum, so you assumed it had the right spec of everything. But we had a Borum mechanic coming on each rally, going well, that's the wrong spec. That's the wrong spec. And what are those ramp angles? And diff? no, you don't want them ramp angles. You want this ramp angle. And, oh, that final, no, you don't want that final drive. You want this final drive. And so, um, yeah, even by then, there was, uh, like I said, that the car had developed and, and there was different specs that we weren't always knowledgeable about. And, obviously, it was difficult because Chris was running running rival cars, albeit under the same Ford Junior Team umbrella, but I didn't really think... I, I could go along to Chris and say, "What do I need to be using? What 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 do I do with this? What do I do with that?" Um, you know, there was some help, but uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a frustrating year in that we never really. It took us a while to get it to work on gravel. Um, it was better on tarmac. The car inherently was better when you had traction because it always struggled for traction. Um, again, Chris did their own diff spec and they and they got it a lot better, but it it still inherently had um relatively poor traction against like I say some of the the later better developed cars but if you either had um flowing gravel uh or a really flowing tarmac then you know on the manx it was it was a lovely thing to drive on on dry tarmac on the manx it was it was fantastic it was the first car i ever drove on tarmac where you actually pulled a gear more than you thought you would um you know we we obviously all remember watching the three or six Maxis, the mcgans et cetera, with the wide track. And I mean, the Puma never had that power, but it did have the track, which meant, and, and relatively lightweight. So actually the speed you could pull through, it wasn't the super high speed corners. It, it was like the, the fourth, fifth gear corners where you thought you should actually be lifting. And yeah, particularly coming from a heavy group N car, whereas in that car, you could, you know, the corner speed was, was quite eye-opening. That was the first, car i would say that i drove on tarmac where you could actually carry more corner speed than than you thought you could um so um yeah like i say it was it was a bit of a mixed year but we we certainly set some good times and um the ulster i remember the ulster that year it was wet and that that was quite a tricky rally for the car because uh, the muddy narrow lanes it started around Armagh that year just didn't really suit the car but I think we ended up second. Chris won Super Sixteen Hundred. We ended up second. Um, we should have won the Manx, and I, and I made a mistake on the last day. That was my own fault. We were we were leading uh, Super Sixteen Hundred last day, of the Manx, and and cruising honestly. And uh, it was dry, and I just simply made a mistake. Um, I, I think probably the only mistake I remember making in that position, you know, that like a, the only unforced error, if you like, where didn't have to do anything. I like to bring do was bring the car home and you know we've heard a lot of people talk about it over the years that that it's not always easy to do that and um that rally still hurts the 2003 manks we were line sixth overall two minute lead in super 1600 all i had to do was finish um and uh yeah that one hurt it's uh it, it it still hurts now um but track road that year we went to the track road and 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 we were going alright we were sort of mixing times with gwindaff in the mg chris in the in the corsa which you know which was it was a better car um but in the end we had we had drive shaft problems and that and that sort of dropped us right back but um it um yeah it wasn't the year that that i'd hoped you know at at one point it looked like we would maybe go to jwrc the following year but then Borum closed at the end of 2003 and um it uh it was it was great to you know be involved with a a factory-back super 1600 car It just maybe didn't quite deliver uh what um what i hoped it would in terms of of longevity um but you know it was still the right decision to make at the time it was the right thing to do and and it didn't work out for various reasons but um you know i think we all know rallying doesn't owe anybody anything and uh Looking back, it was still nice to uh, do a year in that car. Really,
1: what a car as well! I mean, in terms of an outsized impact it's had on on rallying in terms of culture, I can't think of many Super Sixteen Hundreds that have that have over delivered more than the Puma.
2: No, I mean it was a great looking car. There's no two ways about it, and even now it it, it still looks fantastic. And and I think it's the same with the McGanns and the Three Hundred Sixes. They're just cars that look right, don't they? Um, and and for all the the interest around the two liter kit cars has obviously been there for a long time. There's a, there's a, there's a real subculture of interest around super 1600 cars now, because they were factory developed proper rally cars. And, and, you know, they sounded fantastic. They, uh, I remember somebody saying that to me on the track road An escort local escort guy came up and said, that sounds better than a BDA, um, in the, in the forest. And, uh, they were they were they were cool cars it was a, it was a good category um i think the problem was towards the end it just got so expensive like it i mean it was never cheap because there were effectively albeit there were these hundred thousand euro cars I, I think that was extended maybe to hundred and twenty at the end but you know if you look at the cars that ended up in that category the the c2 and the uh and the swift i mean the development was Uh, quite impressive by that point you know they were they were proper little rally cars by that point the end of super 1600
0: it's probably my favorite of the junior categories as it were in terms of the classes it produced some really really cracking stuff and i'm an absolute sucker for a c2 super 1600 as you just mentioned as well and and the puma as you both rightly pointed out is it's aged magnificently probably better than it actually has a road care even it's it's probably come into its own almost in terms of its looks now as well. They've really looked to business, but the the Puma's kind of coupe design really suited those big arches and the the wing and the rear. It just looked really special, particularly in tarmac trim.
2: Yeah, I, I, and like you say, I think even as a as a standard car, I mean, I remember uh, talking to Alan Rose, who ran Boreham at that time, and he said they never they underestimated the success of the Puma at the time, and um, they had to stop making it because the uh, somebody will correct me on this, but I think he said at the time they'd used soft tooling to produce it. So effectively the tooling wears out. They'd never geared it up to be like a 10-year production run. So literally they made as much as they could till everything was was pretty much worn out. They never expected it to be as successful as it was because underneath it was it was a Fiesta. But um, it just looked, yeah, it looked so much better and, and drove so much better. And like you say, as soon as you put the, the wide arches on it um it it was a, a fantastic looking car um you know obviously it um it spawned the limited edition uh racing puma as well which which looked stunning as a road car but i remember they couldn't sell them you know all ford management were given them because it, it was a 20 odd thousand pound car at the time you could buy an impreza for uh i think even less at the time so um it was a special car it's built by tickford but it it had 150 horsepower, whereas an Impreza had, whatever, 215, 220, was four-wheel drive, turbocharged and everything else. So I remember they really struggled to sell the uh, the, the racing version, but again, uh, it just looked, um, it really did look fantastic.
0: Uh, yeah, and those racing Puba values have just exploded in the last three years as well or so, um, at least for a car that no one really wanted to buy and when I mean, you look at the, the maths of it as you say, it does make sense why not? I think I read somewhere you could get like a fully pro drive performance-packed, all boxes ticked in press at that point for, for less even than the than a fiesta in a fancy frock, yeah. almost as a war, which is quite an injustice to it, but, you know.
2: There was so much work, I think, went into them though, you know, because they went from Tickford as a well, they went to Tickford as a a relatively standard car, and then obviously they did this this whole body kit that they, they put the, all the body kit on and then you know they were painted and the seats and the 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 suspension was the brakes, the the engines. They they were quite an expensive car, I think, for for four to build at the time. And uh yeah, like you say, just the, the maths of it didn't work, but um uh anyway, thankfully it's one of them tucked up next door. So that was kind yeah, of the so- <laughs> next thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. You've reacquired you've reacquired the same car then
2: uh well yeah but there's a racing puma to go with it so brilliant (laughs) (laughs) Uh, brilliant yeah um so i sourced a racing puma for a friend of mine a few years back and uh and he had it for about four years and it sat in it sat in a shed for the last two years of his his time with it and i bought it in a bit of a sorry state and it's again that's that's another slow project but um that one will come back to life eventually so um yeah there is a there is a a racing puma there but i uh yeah, I sort of kept track of where where the original Super sixteen hundred car was. Um, at the end of two thousand three, it was it was uh, sold into uh, sold into Ireland from from Boreham. Um, it came back into uh, into England about two thousand and eight, um, and it was pretty easy to keep track of because it was in and out of Chris Burbeck's workshop, which is only twenty minutes away. So I had seen it and sort of knew where it was and. Chris was talking about buying it, and a couple of others were talking about buying it, and we uh, we managed to get in and uh, yeah, and and buy the car, so the original car. Um, Chris did kindly give me the uh, the FIA gold logbook that he still had in the top drawer of his uh, his filing cabinet for it, so um, all the paperwork's there to to support it. And, and as we said before, it was the the Deval Monte car, so uh, the only Puma ever to win around the the World Junior Championship. And I've got um thanks to Colin McMaster, I've got some pictures of, of the car at the palace. So there's there's Prince Albert stood by the stood by the car, Max Morsley, Dave Richards and and, and Francois Duval with the with the car. So quite nice, um uh, yeah, quite nice mementos. The only thing I haven't got, which sits in Chris's office, is the original rally plate, but he won't let me have that.
1: Sure, you'll start working on it. No, there's no chance. There's no chance. He's not
2: giving me that. He says, "I'm not having it." Yeah.
0: So, what kind of work has been going into that particular car, then, Ryan? Is it? A, is there much? What's your What's your overall plan to restore to original factory yeah. spec, or or go a bit more modernized with it? Or is no,
2: it... not not at all. I want to keep it as it was and and pretty much put it back to to how it was originally. Um, it, it hadn't really deviated away from its original spec that much, honestly. Um, like any rally car that's been subsequently rallied for 20 years, it's, <laughs> she was a bit dogged, um, and, uh, you know, but the, the plan wasn't really to do a bare shell rebuild on it or anything like that to make it concourse. I mean, I'll probably do that eventually, but, uh, the idea is just really to get it up and running again and get it out, maybe do a couple of demo events with it. So the gearbox has, has been done on it. The engine's are way to be done at the minute The car's back in the original colors now in the, in the, in the red and blue um it's just at the the uh local sticker company they're they're just putting the original uh ford rally sport livery on it um so yeah it'll look um look as it did originally i mean i guess eventually it'd be nice to to bear shell it and make it very shiny but uh, i think it'll just be a, a car i'll hang on to um and as we just mentioned really with the interest in super 1600 and it being been a good looking car it's they're relatively rare you know there's not not so many about and whilst there was a few cars built there wasn't so many that had a an interesting history shall we say so um you know it's, it's nice nice to have the one that not only has my history but has that Monty history as well
1: can't wait to see it out
2: hopefully by uh well let's see I'm not making any promises but hopefully it'll be uh up and running somewhere this year
1: <laughs> it's brave of you to actually pin yourself to a deadline.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask, was there a particular ev- event that you had planned for it? But I would be putting you under too much pressure.
1: Yeah. As long as he didn't say the year. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's it. That's it. I, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things uh, things pan out. I have an idea in my head, but I'll I'll leave it in my head for now. <laughs> it's, hey, one, one thing it is definitely going to do, and it's a, it's something I've never done, And uh, I uh, will talk about it in a bit, but obviously I had the Subaru there for a while, the 555 car, and I always wanted to take it to to Rally Legend and and never did. Um, To be honest, the cost of taking that car there always scared me, but um, and there was always, you know, I think it's one of those events that no matter what you turn up in, somebody will always turn up in something better, so I think the Puma has to go there. The Puma with a straight pipe there should be uh, quite good fun. So it's definitely going to Rally Legends. Probably not this year, but it will go there in the future.
0: Sign me up. Sign me up. I need to. Yeah, I've been there a few times, and I will be going back. So yeah, that'll be a good one to see. And and it might be. Well, you know, I haven't seen many Super Sixteen Hundreds at Rally Legends that much. So good to get another bit of variety out to it. And and likely you won't have another Puma there to to compete against so
2: no, like i said it's, it's something i've always wanted to do and um yeah just just the the timing of it's never never quite worked and, and just like i say the sheer cost of of taking something that costs quite a lot to run anyway to uh uh san is not not a small undertaking but that i think that's a, a good car to take so uh yeah definitely on the bucket list
0: well, folks, we're going to pause it there for this week. Uh Ryan, Jamie and I did natter on for quite a while. I mean, he's a very interesting chap and, uh, you know, plenty of great stories to share. So we have split this into two parts and we release part two next week. Thanks for listening as always. Bye-bye.